0: Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. Since we're still a relatively new podcast, I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode and find the link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts and so as many people can find us as possible. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Stephen Barrows, Acton's Managing Director of Programs. Today, we'll reflect on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the COVID lockdown measures underway in Australia. But first, I want to go to Texas. And unless you've been living under a rock, you're probably aware that a law has been passed and gone into effect in Texas that is effectively a uh, heartbeat abortion Prohibition bill, but that it's a little bit different in that it empowers citizens to sue other citizens. So the government has taken out of this, which probably would have led to it immediately being enjoined and struck down by the Supreme Court for violating precedents in Roe and Casey. And in the Supreme Court's own decision, they kind of said, we're not 100% certain who we would enjoin to stop this from going into effect. So they're even still trying to figure it out. And I don't want to discuss the, the law part of it, in part because I'm not a lawyer and I don't think either of you two are either. And I don't really want to get into the politics of it, but I want to get into something that did catch my attention, which was Lyft, uh, the ride-sharing service, sent an email out to assumedly all of its users because I got it. I'm a Lyft user, but I'm here in Michigan, not in Texas. That says uh, a new Texas law, SBA, threatens to punish drivers for getting people to where they need to go, specifically women exercising their right to choose and to access the health care they need. We want to be clear. Drivers are never responsible for monitoring where their riders go or why. Imagine being a driver and not knowing if you're breaking the law by giving someone a ride. Similarly, riders have to justify or even share where they are going and why. Uh, never have to justify and share where they're going or why. Imagine being a pregnant woman trying to get to a healthcare appointment and not knowing if your driver will cancel on you for fear of breaking the law. Both are completely unacceptable. This law is incompatible with people's basic rights to privacy, our community guidelines, the spirit of rideshare, and our values as a company. We are taking actions on two fronts. So these are the two things Lyft says that it's doing. Lyft has created a driver legal defense fund to cover 100% of legal fees for drivers sued under SB8 while driving on their platform. Uh, Riders and drivers, nothing uh, about how you drive, ride, or interact uh, with uh, each other should change. And then two, Texas SB8 is an attack on women's rights to choose. Lyft is donating a million dollars to Planned Parenthood to help ensure that transportation is never a barrier to health care access. Now, I can understand – their position on the first one that given the unique nature of this law that they want to protect their drivers in situations where they might get sued. I can understand that first part, but the second part to me strikes me as uh, different. And Sam, I want to go to you. It it does strike me as a kind of um, some would call it woke capitalism. Clearly, there's political ideology here aligning with the left. But that part of it seems to me completely out of Lyft's scope of business and similar to a lot of other corporate actions supporting political causes when it's not obviously necessary that they need to do anything like that.
1: Well, thanks, Eric. Yes, uh, this case and the behavior of Lyft does, I think, exhibit this broader trend that we see going on in corporate America. Some call it CSR, corporate social responsibility. Some people call call it uh, ESG, environmental, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And it also goes under the name of woke capitalism. And This is this is hardly unique to Lyft. I think it's fair to say that if you look at corporate America when it comes to these sorts of issues, uh, corporate America has headed in a leftward direction. Uh, Remember, for example, the New York Times ad in which all those CEOs of leading companies took out an ad saying that, um, basically, saying that access to abortion is necessary for business. More or less, abortion is good for business, is more or less what this this New York Times ad said. So one can, I think, talk seriously about some of the genuine dilemmas that a law like this presents uh, lift and its drivers in the case of this particular piece of legislation in Texas, which, as you say, is a little different because it's really not about the government taking action. It's about private citizens taking private action in this regard. But Corporate America does itself no favours with at least half the country when it basically says that we are going to line up on the most controversial issue in the United States today in which there is very little, um, let's call it common ground, in which there's very little really room for um, (laughs) compromise, I would suggest, uh, because of the way in which this particular issue has been framed and the way it's developed over the years. So Lyft have also has to think now that, OK, there's lots of people, including myself, that will now, if they're faced with a choice between Lyft and uh, Uber, will probably go with Uber now. Because if all things being equal is, is on this particular issue, when it comes to the way that these companies are behaving like, about this issue, I don't know what Uber's position is, but I, I know what Lyft's position is.
0: I believe so Uber if, has echoed what uh, Lyft has said they're going to do.
1: Okay. Well, you see, this is the thing. There'll be a lot of people that will say, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to use taxis, or I'm going to find other some other means of doing this. And this is the calculation, I think, that a lot of businesses are having to make. They're having to make the calculation that if they line up on one political side, then they're willing to alienate everyone who's on the other side. We've seen companies do this with regard to Uh, the second amendment and gun rights. We've seen companies do this with regard to the way that particular uh, businesses, the way that particular sports talk about China and what's going on in China. But I also think it reflects the fact that it's a major distraction from what the purpose of business is and what business's proper contribution to the common good is. The purpose of business is not political activism. The purpose of business is not uh, to basically try and rewrite the social contract. The purpose of business and the way that it contributes to the common good is to provide goods and services at prices that are valued by consumers and thereby return a profit for its owners, be they private owners or publicly, or if it's a publicly listed company, lots and lots of owners. And in the process, as a side effect of doing that, provide capital for the rest of society, provide jobs to lots of people. So I guess when it comes to these sorts of issues, my worry is that the more and more companies go down this particular path, the more they're going to find themselves distracted from what is their way of contributing to the common good. If the executives of Lyft or the executives of Uber want to contribute money to Planned Parenthood or any other such organization, they're perfectly free to do so with their own money on their own time. It seems to me deeply distracting from what the market is about and what business is about for them to embrace this type of reasoning, this type of political activism, And they'll pay a price for this in the long term, because what will happen, of course, is that more and more people, more and more activists, mostly from the left, will say, OK, you've taken your stance on this issue. Now we need you to line up on all these other issues as well. So these are, I think, this is very treacherous water for business to get itself into. But, you know, I have to say that generally speaking, corporate America is not particularly, doesn't have a particularly good record when it comes to thinking and strategizing their way through these dilemmas
0: yeah it as sam said it it is a particularly divisive issue in this country in in a way that most other issues are not because on either polar ends of it, you have people who are absolutely convinced of the moral justification for their position, and then for the people in the middle kind of your Independents or more practical uh, political observers of this issue, it's kind of a sliding scale that really starts the um, the the earlier in pregnancy you are, the more people who are okay with allowing some access to abortion, and the longer it goes, uh, the less okay people are with it. Uh, so I think Sam is right that yes, it is divisive, and there certainly is a portion of the country who are, as Sam pointed out, users of Lyft's product. So does the economics of this make sense? Does Lyft think that they are serving a customer base well by making a statement like this, by taking a political stance on it, by joining the everyone must have an opinion on everything, even corporate entities, which we're constantly told aren't people and can't have opinions on anything,
2: now must have an opinion on it, and, and here we are. Well, you know, it's, I I agree with, with Sam. In the end, that you have the purpose of businesses to be making goods and services for society, and and make a profit in in the midst of that. And of course, the marketplace is going to determine what is and is not profitable. I think that many of these com- companies are ultimately making an implicit jun- judgment, probably even doing some calculus on what kinds of things they can speak out to, which would, we would ordinarily consider, you know, social issues or or political issues and they made a calculus that out you know out in the marketplace there is a certain subset of people who are going to care and it's going to shift their preferences one way or another to either uh, you know purchasing those goods and services of the company, or avoiding them. And in the end, this, I think, reflects that the choices that companies are making are downstream from culture, and culture helps shape the consumer's demand for goods and services. And so it's not surprising that you see more and more companies, you know, checking checking the pulse of the culture and deciding that, you know, we think that more people care if we come down on this side of the issue than on the other side of the issue and they'll make a, make a judgment accordingly. So in, in one sense, it's an extension of their own marketing campaign, right? You know, there there are enough individuals out there who this would resonate with, right? Would say, oh, great, they're giving to Planned Parenthood and, you know, good for good for Lyft. And, and maybe there's a whole other subset of folks that would really bother and they're going to make the choice um, to, to switch to some other kind of transportation services. But I think the company itself has made the calculus that those individuals are not going to outweigh those who are going to favor this kind of a statement. And so they're responding to to demand in the marketplace i think in some sense to to bang on for a moment about
0: one of my hobby horses in all of this as you said it's it's downstream from culture but i think these kinds of situations are also downstream from the fact that our our government and our political system in particular congress is not working properly. Mm-hmm. Congress is the place in which these political battles are supposed to be fought out. And and what is unique about what Texas did is that, you know, unlike a lot of the uh, judge-made law that we seem to have from basically starting with Roe v. Wade and continuing on since then, is that you have a law, something that has been passed by a legislature and signed into law by a governor. So you do have some functioning political element there, but largely because of the way that we have dealt with abortion in this country, it has been outside of the hands of the political actors through which the people express their political preferences. And as a result, you get this, and you see this in plenty of other areas as well, where politics, because it is not being taken care of in either state legislatures or in Congress, is infecting every other part of society. And we fight these things out in the marketplace. We fight them out with corporations having to take stances on every possible issue under the sun. And if I, I can't help but think, and even if you go back, Ruth Bader Ginsburg expressed the same concern about Roe as a decision that it took what was you know, the American people working out something very difficult— through the proper processes, and it cut it short and produced a, a whole lot of political consternation over the fifty some years that have happened since then. so sam, if if Steve is right and they are serving some market segment, it, in a way, you're you're talking about it being a distraction from what they're doing. And I think Steve may seem to be suggesting here that it actually fits into their business model. I mean, does this Lyft has to think that this is, good for them at least politically if not in a business sense are they just do you think they're
1: just wrong about it well i have a, a couple of things first of all there's been very little empirical research done on how let's call them woke policies affect the bottom line the only research i've stu- i've seen on this particular subject suggests that it's more or less a wash that for Every person you attract because you're taking a woke stance on whatever the issue happens to be, you alienate someone else. Um, And that when it comes to consumers making choices in the marketplace, yes, there's a significant number of people who want their political preferences to play into that. But there's lots and lots and lots of other factors that go into my choice to choose Uber over Lyft or a taxi over any of these particular types of companies. So the little research that's been done on this, I'd stress, has said that uh, it doesn't really seem to show up in the bottom line. Now, if that's the case, then it seems to me that this is reflecting – the political preferences of a lot of people in corporate America today. I, I laugh when I hear people talk about corporate America as this bastion of conservatism or pro-market sentiment because it's simply not true. They're, most of them or not most of them a lot of them are basically um, cronies in some way or another. And then we have to also consider that a lot of people who are in the corporate America world, They've gone to exactly the same colleges and, and um, universities as everyone else. They read the same lefty stuff in their newspapers every day. So we shouldn't, why should we assume that somehow they're going to be somehow uh, more socially conservative or even, for that matter, pro-market in that regard? And as for the political calculation, I think there's something to be said for that because maybe it's the case that when it comes to things like, okay, how do we get that government contract? Well, in states like California and New York, it really helps if we can say to whoever the congressman or state senator or state legislature is, hey, look at us. We're really woke. Our competitors aren't. That's another reason why you should give us this particular contract and not other people. So um, the market calculation, I think, is is something that clearly plays a role here. What we're not clear about is whether and to what, if, if to any extent at all, it really shifts the needle when it comes to profits. But I also think it sort of plays back into this idea that many of these issues are downstream from culture. So some business guy who went to college in the, I don't know, the early 2000s and started to encounter a lot of this type of thinking, this monolithic, monolithic left-wing thinking that is a uh, um, often promoted in the name of diversity in so many colleges and universities, uh, they're reflecting, in many cases, what they believe, what they think about the world. And that, to, to my mind, simply underlines the strength of the case. For if you are going to persuade people, like I would like people to be pro-life, and if you're going to persuade them to do that, then you need to be in the business of persuading them culturally, intellectually philosophically. Because yeah, I think I, the, pro, the pro-choice position is, is, frankly, to my mind, so intellectually incoherent. Um, but that's often the case, frankly, because many people have never heard the other side expressed to them in a rational, coherent way.
2: I want to jump on something that Sam had just pointed out about the, the scarcity of empirical research on the matter. I, I think it would be fascinating to expand that you know, empirical research beyond what the impacts are on profit to see whether or not there's a correlation between market concentration... And the tendency to take a position on some of these more controversial issues in a woke fashion. See, my mm-hmm. suspicion is that a number of these companies feel like they have already captured a market segment or could continue to improve their profits if they go ahead and pursue these woke ideas and, and market them out as, as taking the position that, would, that, that a number of individuals would favor – Whereas if you have a highly diverse, uh, a, a large dispersion of firms providing services, I think there's less of an inclination to be able to to, uh, to jump out and make a statement in this regard. So I, I think that would be an interesting hypothesis to determine whether or not there's a, a relationship here. Because yeah, I, unfortunately, I agree. If you, if you don't have choice, right? If you don't have choice right. or if your choices are restricted.
1: And the one thing I, I would add is that it's noticeable when companies have their feet held to the fire a lot of the corporate executives will start backing away from these woke positions. Remember the Georgia, the Georgia case, where you had all these companies, um, the CEOs in particular, saying things like, "Well, we're going to we're going to get out of Georgia, or we're going to move our operations elsewhere," and then suddenly there was a huge backlash, and suddenly a lot of CEOs started. To, being saying much more cautious things, saying, well, maybe we don't want to get as political as we we originally seemed, or our CEO is only speaking for himself, et cetera. Right. So um, the more that they are made aware that outside their woke bubble, there's 50% of the country that has a very different view to the woke bubble on all sorts of different questions, the more some of the economic calculus might start to change.
0: Yeah, here's where I think Steve is on to something, which it it was reminding me of a story from a previous part of my life and career where I was heavily involved in Illinois politics and heavily uh, dominated by the Democrats, including a longtime speaker of the House who's an incredible political operator. And there came a point where the public sector unions because of the bad budget situation in illinois were going to need to take some kind of a ding they weren't happy about it and the democrat speaker of the house and the super majorities in both chambers were more or less on board with the idea that we're going to ding them a little because it's going to be politically beneficial to us and when the question was posed to the speaker about you know well aren't you worried about the consequences for the union that they're not going to like this and his answer was where else are they going to go? <laughs> right. right. And with, as Sam had pointed out, that you, you have Lyft and Uber has echoed at least the part about um, taking care of legal fees and any legal costs that might come to one of its drivers. And then Sam mentioned, well, perhaps the alternative of just taking taxis, which, you know, there aren't a whole lot of them in depending, you know, here we're here in Grand Rapids and I had to go to the airport last week very early in the morning. It wasn't even a sure shot that I would get a Lyft or an Uber, scheduled a car service. There really is no really um, abundant taxi service in this city. And the whole reason... Why Lyft and Uber became a thing in the first place is because of how disenchanted people in major metropolitan areas were with the taxi companies, especially places like New York, where to go to Sam's point about cronyism, the medallion system has been one of the most crony systems, the way that people own these medallions that are granted by the state, don't actually operate the cars, but lease them out to people to make income. I don't have a problem with passive income, but I have a problem with passive income when it's just enabled by the state in that way. Uh, so I think there is that problem of, well, if people want to object to what Lyft and Uber are doing, what real alternatives do they have? Not a lot of good ones that I can see.
1: Here's here's another thing to think about with regard to this question. And, you know, I think a lot of companies are assuming that people's views about some of these controversial issues we're talking about remain the same for most of their lives. But I mean, I think that can also be a significant miscalculation because we do know that people's views do change when they get married, when they get a job, when they start paying taxes, when they have children, when suddenly they discover that woke niceties don't really provide you with a coherent explanation of the meaning of the universe and where life is and where life is going. And people's views and positions consequently change. So if they are assuming that somehow people's views, particularly say people between the ages of 20 and 40, are going to remain the same for the rest of their lives, they could be making a significant miscalculation. Uh, we've also seen this with regard to particular demographic groups. Remember, once upon a time, the uh, Catholics in the United States voted overwhelmingly Democrat. Episcopalians voted overwhelmingly Republican. Neither of those two things have been the same for a very, very long time. We're also seeing the shift of um, small shifts in African-American opinion and as exhibited by voting and Asian-American opinion about all sorts of questions that I think the woke types should be very attentive to because I think they're assuming that people, because they're a certain religion or skin colour or gender or whatever it is, are going to stay locked into one position for the rest of their lives. Well, they're probably not in many cases, and that, I think, starts to upset the long-term economic calculus that I think some of these companies are making when they're assuming which way social preferences will go.
0: Yeah, there's always going to be a problem in straight-line projections and, and right. anything. And people tend to make those, especially politically, and they almost never work out politically. I want to go from down south in Texas, where we have been, to down under to discuss what is going on in Australia right now. So from an American perspective, looking at the kinds of lockdowns that Australia has been imposing on people with a very limited number of covid cases, the the kind that are certainly not prompting anything like that here in the United States or even in most of the rest of the world. if there's similar policies to Australia and New Zealand happening as well. And we look at it and we're just kind of baffled why people would put up with this. And we're going to include in the show notes for the episode two interesting tweet threads that I've seen the last couple of weeks on this, Um, one from uh, the political commentator, Gray Connolly, and another from uh, ABC broadcaster, not that ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Josh Zeps trying to explain basically where Australians are looking at this from and why the kinds of things as Americans that we would just seemingly never tolerate the idea that there's an app that you can download even if it's some kind of voluntary program where they you know you have they would call on you and you have 15 minutes to send back a picture showing where you are that you're in compliance with the lockdown. now look again, this is an alternative, and, and, and Zepps makes this point in response to a, an interesting piece um, entitled Australia Traded Away Too Much Liberty from Conor Friedersdorf at the Atlantic. Uh, so, like It's not mandatory, and it is a way to uh, basically avoid the kind of mandatory in-house lockdowns. But I think it's impossible for us to not look at this and just think creepy Orwellian, and even if the scope is limited right now— what else could it be utilized for somewhere down the road? You know, you innocently implement these things. You know, they in, in the Terminator movies, they built Skynet with the idea that it would manage all this stuff for us. And the next thing you know, it's declaring war on us. So you you don't know. Again, straight line projection, Sam. You don't know where this is going to go. So, Sam, I'm going to turn it to you first. What is going on in Australia, and why is this level of deprivation of liberty seemingly tolerated there to the extent that it is, or certainly beyond the point that I think in America we would tolerate it?
1: Okay, well, as an Australian-born person, I have some insights into this, and let me say a couple of things. First of all, Australians have this reputation for being highly individualistic, devil-may-care types who thumb their nose at the law. And uh, who have this sort of what we call a larrikin approach to life?
0: I can Crocodile Deed the, uh, Dundee yeah, did a lot I mean, of that is, for us. Yeah. It is
1: so removed from reality. Australians are actually quite obedient when it comes to the law. So that's, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Well, one is you have to think about the, the, fo- the founding of the country. So the country was not founded in revolution like the United States was the country was founded as a as a penal colony in in 1788 so who was who are the people that are there right from the very beginning there's two groups right from the beginning convicts who do what they're told otherwise they get whipped or worse and soldiers who also do what they're told otherwise <laughs> and if they don't they also get whipped or worse so there is this long history of deference to authority in Australia, which I think is, is very different from the United States. Now, I'm not saying Australia is a sort of implicitly authoritarian or anything like that, but it's a very different way of thinking about authority. Uh, a second thing, I think, is it's important to remember there are no, there's no Bill of Rights in Australia. Australia is one of the very few countries in the world that doesn't have a Bill of Rights Uh, And there's a lot of opposition to having a Bill of Rights as well because uh, these things, particularly in the sort of more post-1950s, 1960s way, have been vehicles in many jurisdictions, Canada being perhaps the, the most notorious example, of where Bills of Rights have been the basis on which activist courts have proceeded to basically ramrod all sorts of things over the will of the majority of the population and even the legislature. So there's, there's that's but that's a very different way of thinking about a bills of rights in the way that compared to how America thinks about its b- bills of rights. These are seen as, in America, as protections of basic liberties. In Australia, notions of bills of rights are opposed by a lot of people, and I opposed them when I was living there, because they basically, people looked around the world and said, okay, these are being used as a way to ramrod all sorts of ideas that most people would not accept and legislatures are not willing to to, um, put into place either. So that's another factor. Thirdly, both Australia and New Zealand are, of course, islands, big islands, but they are islands. So governments made the calculation right at the beginning, both the federal government and the state governments made the calculation that isolation and quarantining from the rest of the world the effects of coronavirus was a real possibility in a way that it wasn't for european countries or the united states or latin america or africa and to a certain extent that that seemed to have paid off but what it means of course is that politicians committed themselves on both sides by the way committed themselves to the notion that we can beat covid we can have a COVID free world. We can prevent this from coming into the country. So, on the basis of that calculation, they asked the population to make these enormous sacrifices in terms of lockdowns, of um, compromises of civil liberties that Americans would never put up with in the long term. But now the politicians find themselves trapped, right? Because they're seeing that you can't actually stop Cravona from entering a country, even if it is a big island like Australia. Which means that at some point you're going to have to accept that even with vaccinations, which are starting to take off there in a very big way, even with vaccinations, you're going to have to live at some level with COVID. Which means you're going to have to accept that some people are going to die, right? Or mm-hmm. more, you're going to, certainly you're going to have, certainly you're going to have more levels of infection. And of course, what this means is that electorates are going to turn around to governments and say, "Hang on." you 've told us for the past twenty months that we could avoid all this that we wouldn 't have to we wouldn 't have deaths we wouldn 't have massive rates of infection and that 's the bargain that you gave us but now' you're, now you 're going to tell us that that was basically all for nothing so this is the political trap that the political class on both sides find themselves locked into now so it 's only now that some state premiers who are basically the equivalent of governors in Australia, are saying, well, I guess we're going to have to live with COVID. But there are other state premiers, like the premier of Western Australia, who's saying we will have zero COVID even if I have to lock this this state off from the rest of the country forever. Yeah. So <laughs> these are the sorts of very strange contemporary political dynamics, but also longstanding traditions, I think, that help to explain a lot of why Covid has been approached in the way that it has in Australia.
0: I, I'm glad Sam pointed out in the history of Australia, its its founding as a penal colony As a quick aside. It reminds me of my favorite story about uh, Prince Philip, who passed away back in April, at a, uh, hitting the Queen on traveling to Australia. They made this big production of like, you know, well, no, no special treatment or anything. So we're, uh, you know, going to need to you know see passports and ask ask you uh, a few questions. And one of the questions was, um, you know, do you uh, do you have a criminal record? And he said, oh, I didn't know that was still a requirement. So the, I think Sam makes an interesting point about the zero COVID philosophy, right? right? So, you know, the, you can speak to this, I would think as an, as an economist as well, that like, you know, you, you can never, I don't think you're ever going to get zero or a hundred percent of anything, right? right? So why are we getting so trapped? I say we in a royal we sense, but why are particularly our political leaders getting so trapped? I mean, I think as Sam was pointed out, you could see the trap that you're setting for your, for themselves, like government officials that they're setting for themselves by making these promises that they have to know. Right. They're never going to be able to deliver on. You're never going to be able to deliver on zero COVID. And yet they make these promises anyway.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that happens to a certain extent here in the United States. There hasn't been adequate humility of our you know pub- public policy officials and you know heads of the uh, of various agencies and the decisions they've made you know you can understand why certain decisions were made from the outset when there was a lot of uncertainty and the lack of information about the severity of this disease and 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 how rapidly it would spread but as you gather more information you need to update your policy to reflect the information you have at hand and i think that this is what some of these politicians need to take the take the opportunity now to say now that we know more mm-hmm. okay we're going to adjust accordingly and what strikes me is this homogeneity of across an entire population, you treat everybody the same. This makes no sense from an economic standpoint. I mean, the, the risk calculus uh, is different uh, based on different subsets of the population. And I think policy ought to reflect that. And so having more targeted uh, responses in certain subsets of the population makes sense. But to t- create these sweeping mechanisms that apply to, to an entire country doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and it's, it is striking to me how individuals would be willing to give up some of their freedoms and not thinking through that risk calculus accordingly.
0: So, well, and, and in that sense, at least, as Sam was pointing out, in, in a way, they were being lied to by government officials. If, if part of the trade-off. In Australia, as Sam was saying, that they think we can get to zero COVID, that we're going to be without it forever rather than being what always seemed to me at the outset of this to be the inevitable place where we get to, which is, you know, it's unlike the dumb conversation we were having at the beginning there where it's just like the flu. It wasn't just like the flu, but we would want to get it to where we think of it endemically like the flu, that it's something that happens, there's cycles of it. We will continue to advance vaccine technology and ways to treat it over time. And you know, you you think about the, the, the trade-offs question. not the trade-offs question, but and then this is what I would want to throw out there. Why are we so bad? At intaking new information and changing the positions that we have based on that new information, not to relitigate the beginning of the pandemic again. But I thought a lot of the responses that were deprivations of freedom and harmful to the economy in the very beginning in March and April of last year were understandable given how little we knew about the virus at the time. But the longer that it goes on and the more that we learn, like unlike the Spanish flu from the early 1900s, it does not disproportionately affect children. And just for a moment, pause to think how much we would be going out of our minds if this was something that disproportionately affected children as opposed to older people. We could think about what that says about us. I mean, it's the way that we kind of discount. It was like, well, it's just older people, but you know, it's justified to lose your mind about it affecting kids. As we continue to learn more and more about the populations that affected the worst, um, the way that it spread. I mean, we were even still doing a lot of they're still doing a lot of the covid theater stuff, of, right. you know, wiping down services, even though we really know that's not the way that it spreads. Why, Sam, are we so bad about changing decisions we've made, policies we've created based on new information, no matter how clear that new information seems to be?
1: Well one I think one reason is the political backlash that inevitably follows when you engage in this sort of overpromising exercise right at the beginning we can stop covid okay the moment you start to take on new, new information and you realize you've got to change your position there's a p- political price to be paid for what some of the decisions you made right at the beginning and the rhetoric that you've employed right at the very beginning if you look at some of these state premiers in in Australia so the premier of Victoria I mean, he, he is uh extremely left-wing politician. He's never seen a solution that doesn't have the state involved in some major way. The rhetoric that this that he uses is almost apocalyptic when it comes to talk. So there'll be a few cases that emerge in the state, 100 cases in one day, and he'll present this as being uh, heralding the end times. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is, the ideologicalization of this, this type of situation, whereby everyone starts to get locked into a type of orthodoxy about these positions. And no one wants to be the first to say, maybe lockdowns don't work. Maybe some of these, as you call them, COVID theater measures aren't particularly effective. Maybe we've learned some things. It's very hard when everyone in the political class is saying one thing, to go against that. It's very, very hard to do, precisely because you'll then be portrayed as, well, he's this radical... Um, non-conformist who's putting people's lives unnecessarily at risk, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the
0: way that we translated this so quickly into partisan camps—that like the, yeah, the positions that you right. had on these were indi- indicators of which political position you held.
1: That's right. That's right. So if you are a skeptic of lockdowns, then clearly you are someone who is deeply disregarding of human life, particularly elderly people. Um, on the other hand, if you say other things about s- lockdowns well, you're clearly some sort of crypto authoritarian who's always wanted to do this to society and now you finally have your chance.
2: Yeah, I would just quickly want to add, uh, in addition to changing in the basis of new information, I think changes also need to occur in pointing out what other numbers people should be paying attention to even if things haven't changed. So for example, if you were to establish a policy that says we want to get automobile fatalities down to zero. And so as a result we're going to implement a law that says 5 miles per hour is what the speed limit is in the country. Well, is if you're paying attention only to automobile deaths that you're going to say what great success we're just lowering this number dramatically. But if you don't, if you point out to somebody, yeah, but now, you know, the ambulances can't get these people undergoing you know heart attacks to the hospital emergency room in a sufficient time. And the increase in number of people dying from heart attacks because they can't get to the emergency room quickly enough is, is skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the rational thing to do is say, oh, yeah, we didn't look at that side of the ledger. We should probably rethink this policy because we aren't paying attention to the deaths we are creating unwittingly. And of course, you know, COVID is a serious disease. We don't want to, you know, diminish that. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't ignore the other side of the ledger. And too often, I think politicians don't pay attention to the other side of the ledger. And, and, this and to is... Steve,
1: is, Steve is really pointing to trade-offs, right? Yes, exactly. This is, this, is, this is part of what it's about. And so think about the lockdowns and think about, for example, the number of people who couldn't get their regular checkups for anything ranging from uh, um, uh, breast cancer testing, all these sorts of things, and suddenly they're going to discover that because they missed that test, because they were not allowed to go to hospitals or see their doctor in person or get that checkup, suddenly they're facing uh, potentially life-threatening diseases that they may not have had to face if uh, things hadn't been locked down and treated the way that they were i mean i think that's part of it you know economy, uh, politicians don't like thinking about trade-offs because that makes things complicated. Well, right, and
0: I, th- I think that this is also why, to me, this, the overwhelming story of the way we've dealt with coronavirus has been a story of political failure because it's expected to me that the CDC has one mission and that would be zero COVID. I mean, I think they would, it would, they would need to recognize that you're never going to get to that, but like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is literally their name. It's the job of politicians to say, "Okay, that singular focus that you were just right. talking about, Steve. Okay, that's one part of it, but we have other things to consider as well." And they're the ones we empower to make decisions on balancing all of these things. Right. And I think we saw just in you know another endemic situation, an endemic failure of our political culture to be able to handle that. Now, in the in the time left uh, on Saturday will be the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on september 11th and we recently had our intern class here at acton and one of them had they they were working on a you know ways that we respond to crises and 9-11 was one that they were talking about and someone one of them asked me a question about you know how to the extent to which it's still with us and i'm like you know in a way i think it's I think it's kind of gone like it's just faded in cultural memory it doesn't dominate our politics anymore we we were clearly tired with the war in Afghanistan which is the longest extension of our response to 9-11 and and I heard a comment from I can't remember who it's from uh that said like eh, more or less in in rebuttal to what I've been thinking that it it kind of stays with us like a scar right you know it's there and it in forms our reactions to things even if it doesn't dominate our memory. Steve, you know 20 years after 911, you know what thoughts do you have 20 years later about what happened that day
2: and and what's transpired since? So, I guess I look at this uh, within the context of my background as a retired Air Force uh, officer. And, you know, at the time, it was traumatic for everybody when we saw what happened. And I think the first thing that came to mind at the time was, you know, there is evil in the world and there are people who do not like freedom. They do not like uh, what this country stands for. And as a result, uh, we need to be ever vigilant to be aware of that and not be naive into thinking that evil isn't out there. Um, so, you know, updating now to 20 years, I think one of the things that comes to my mind is mm well, what is it that we aren't thinking about today where our enemies would really want to do damage to us and so you know predominantly in my mind comes you know cybersecurity risk we've become so dependent upon the cyber world and there is a real threat out there and, and although it wouldn't be as perhaps concentrated as, and dramatic as what we saw at the uh, uh, the attacks in 9/11 you could do significant damage to both human life and freedom uh, uh, through cyber attacks so those are the kinds of things that stick in my mind you know we, we need to be ever vigilant because there is evil in the world and there are people who do want to do us harm. Sam?
1: I have two thoughts. One is that 9-11, I remember succinctly thinking of this at the time, really signaled, I think, in many respects, the end of that post-war, post-Cold War euphoria. That somehow mm. this was it. We were Things were settled. Right. We were sort of at the end of history, to quote Francis Fukuyama's famous book, The End of History and the Last Man. Economic globalization is proceeding. Inevitably, this is going to make the rest of the world more like us. Well, on 9-11, we discovered that there's a significant chunk of the world that, to varying degrees, does not want to be like us. In fact, they look at us, the West, generally speaking, and they see some things, a lot of things they don't like. So that's the first thing. And I'm not sure we've ever really confronted that reality. The second thing is that there is, of course, a religious dimension to 9 11. This was uh, most underlined for me. I remember, I think it was during the last years of the second Biden, uh, I'm sorry, the second Obama administration. And they had this very big conference about terrorism and how to deal with terrorism and the causes of terrorism. But there was one subject that was basically ruled out as a topic that may not be discussed at this particular gathering, and that subject was religion, Mm. that you couldn't talk about the religious dimension of this. And this is is interesting because it's undeniable that there is, there was and is a religious dimension to what happened on 9-11 and the movements that gave rise to that, but particularly in the West, particularly among a lot of politicians, both on the left and on the right, there's a reluctance to talk about this. And I think it's because there's a deep reluctance to think that religion actually influences the way that people think and act, that we're not, in fact, homo That So, for example... Uh, it came to light uh, within a few years. So people started looking at things like, okay, what are the backgrounds of terrorists, the people who blow up planes, who go around killing, um, killing people, et cetera, who blow up uh, subways, who massacre 200 people in the streets of Paris? What's the background of these people? And the assumption was, okay, these are clearly people from economically deprived backgrounds. They're being oppressed, et cetera. They're uneducated. So the solution is wealth and education, et cetera. But it turns out, This is not the typical background of terrorists. Look at the 9-11 hijackers. The guy who led it was a trained engineer, educated in the West, educated in Germany. If you look at um, the the type of terrorists that are active in doing very terrible things against Israel, it's the same middle-class, well-educated background, often from quite affluent families. So what this tells us is that Economics is a solution. Good economics is a solution for lots and lots of things, but good economics is not going to resolve some very basic pathologies of faith and reason, of the type that Benedict XVI talked about in his 2006 Regensburg address. And remember that that address was—it was partly about certain streams of Islamic thought, but that address was actually much more about us. Mm. It was about the West the pathologies of faith and reason that characterize the rest, the West, and our inability to think about religion seriously and its relationship to reason. And that, to my mind, is something that religious leaders should be talking about, but for the most part, don't. It shouldn't be hard
0: for us to wrap our minds around the Point Sam was making about the backgrounds because if you go back and you look at the 1960s and a lot of the radicals, the ones at the convention in 68 that were uh, having the conflict with the police in the streets of Chicago, largely, you know, they're not the poor and downtrodden. They right. are from bourgeois families. You can read your read your Schumpeter and find that, you know, is the, the, the children of the entrepreneurs and, and the well-off reject the system that made their parents wealthy. So it, it shouldn't be hard for us to to wrap our mind around, but and yet here we are, Sam needing to make that point about our misconception of it. You know, and as, as I reflect on it, I was a sophomore in college when it happened and it just seems like I thought of it less in the sense that Sam pointed out that's like the end of that post-Cold War euphoria because that was like, I was like a fish in water. I didn't know I was wet. That was just what I'd grown up in. I didn't really have the perspective of the Cold War that existed before the Berlin Wall fell. In uh, the end of the Soviet Union, uh, but it was clear to me that like it was going to change a lot of things. And I guess I'm I'm surprised by a number of things. I, I think there was the feeling when it happened that like this is going to be maybe not to this extent. You know, three thousand people dead. The World Trade Center is toppled in New York City. A plane flew into the Pentagon. Flight ninety three in, in Pennsylvania to lesser extents, the kind of thing we're going to live with for a while, right? I've always been kind of amazed that the kind of like shopping mall bombings that happened in places like Israel never did happen here. And you can point to as we're having this conversation now about Afghanistan and exiting from Afghanistan, sorting out the correlation causation problems in all of this, right? So is our engagement in Afghanistan one of the reasons why we didn't have another similar 9-11 style attack or is it because executing that kind of thing is incredibly difficult? And if you go through the lead-up and the day, the day-by-day day, uh, history prior to that day, and the hour-by-hour hour breakdown, the minute-by-minute minute breakdown of that day, they got incredibly lucky, mm. and they just haven't gotten lucky since. Because I think we'd all agree that they, if they could attack us again like that, they probably would uh, would want to. So I think I'm kind of amazed. That we uh, it hasn't happened and hasn't been more prevalent, but to Steve's point, I, I have to agree with him too that it's I worry about our problem of always fighting the last war. Right, the way that we have precautions with uh, transportation security administration are really trying to prevent the same kind of thing that happened on 9/11 from happening again. Whereas previously, when planes were hijacked before 9/11, anybody who's seen the Chuck Norris movie Delta Force, you go and you sit on a runway somewhere and expect to be ransomed and that changed everything. And we are not thinking prospectively about what the next thing to befall us could look like. And I, I worry about that, but I do want to close with something Steve pointed to in the very beginning there, which has always stuck out to me. It was a great quote from president George W. Bush when he was interviewed about what his experience on the day of was like, that's always stuck with me in that, um, the lesson of nine 11 is that, uh, evil is real. And mm. so is courage. And we have uh, coming out tomorrow on our episode of Act in Line on, on Wednesday, September 8th. Uh, we have an interview with a gentleman named Niels Jorgensen, who is the host of a new podcast series called 20 for 20 from Iron Light Labs. That is 20 incredible stories of heroism to celebrate the 20th anniversary of 9-11, including an amazing one we talked about of this uh, guy who is a bond trader. in one of the uh, floors above where one of the planes hit that they knew as the Rev, who would read his Bible at his desk. And, you know, the culture of Wall Street, he was subject to a lot of ridicule. And as they realize, we're going to die. If the plane hit below us, there's no way they can evacuate us. He stood on his desk and said, I'm going to meet Jesus today who wants to come with me. And a lot of them, there are stories of phone calls back to their their spouses about how they were praying with him. So there are incredible stories about the heroism of 9 I encourage you to check out our Act in Line episode tomorrow as well as the 20 for 20 podcast series. We'll include links to that in the show notes. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If again, if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Again, this podcast is still relatively new, so do us a favor, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find us. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.